Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Some extra space. I was talking to Sean about the idea of what we do on a Sunday morning. Um, And what we do on a Sunday morning is not um, entertain or educate as much as we try and create a space where God, by His Spirit, is able to take His Word and shape us. Um, And so He does that in a number of different ways. He does that through worship. He does that um, through the words that are brought. And most importantly, He does that through the Word that He has given and protected for so many years. So, um, as you know, we've been going through Galatians, and we've been talking about the implications of Jesus, Him crucified and raised from the dead, And now at Palm Sunday, we shift into the narrative of the story of when Jesus actually um, came into Jerusalem ready to be crucified um, on our behalf. We're going to look at three movements this morning. We're going to look at just before Jesus comes in, how he heals some blind men. We're going to look at what is called the triumphal entry, and then we're also going to look at Jesus cleansing the temple. Matthew 20, verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. I want you to remember that as we go through the rest of the crowd, unable to see who Jesus is. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, You Sorry, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, which Sean read this morning. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks And he sat on them, and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This this portion of scripture immediately produces some challenges for us. It produces some challenges for us because we kind of are a little culturally separated from this moment. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I'm thinking about is, you know, as Jesus is, is walking into the city, he calls these two disciples and he says, 
go and find me this donkey and this colt. I wonder who those two disciples were. You know, I wonder what they were saying to each other. Why us? Why, why is he going to pick us for this really weird um, kind of uh, expedition? Couldn't he? I mean, we've seen him raise people from the dead. Uh, we've seen him multiply bread and fish. Could he not just multiply a donkey? What is this all about? Why do we have to go and do this? And it just reminds me that we live in a culture of negotiation rather than a culture of sacrificial obedience. And most of us, if Jesus had told us to do something like that, would be like, I'm sure there's a better way. I'm sure we could find another donkey. Besides, aren't you a king? Wouldn't it be better if you had a horse or something like that? We live in this place of negotiating with God rather than a sense of costly obedience, especially when we don't know that why we're even doing this. Now, it sounds like the disciples knew exactly why he was coming on a cult, but we know that they didn't understand any of this until the Holy Spirit had come on them after Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, Jesus has authority, and he's sending his disciples, and one of the challenges we have in our kind of culture is that we don't respond immediately, but rather we negotiate. If we were disciples, we'd negotiate. I can imagine this person who comes up to you and, and says, hey, can we borrow your donkey and your colt? And I'd be like, what for? For how long? Am I going to get compensated? What happens if the donkey bucks Jesus off? Who's going to be liable for that? You know what I mean? It's like these days, everyone gets to say no because of the liability issue, right? Uh, there's always that kind of thing. And, and one of the questions I have as, as we are preparing our hearts to welcome the king is, are we those that are saying yes to a costly obedience? Yes to a sense of not really understanding why Jesus is asking us to do this. And even more so when it's a secondary approach. And when it's not Jesus himself asking us, but he's sending his disciples. Like someone else is saying to you, hey, I think it's a good idea for you to fast. If Jesus wanted to fast, me to fast, he would come and he would tell me himself. If Jesus wants this donkey and colt, then he can come and he can ask me himself. And it's even more difficult for us to respond with sacrificial obedience when it is an indirect ask for those. I think it's, it's probably also difficult for us to imagine because we, uh, we, we live more in a culture of passionate, um, and instead of passionate engagement, we live in this culture of detached observation. I think most of us, if we were there, would look something like this. Um, this, this is probably what the scene would look like, right? Now, these are Formula One fans. I love Formula One. Drive to survive, Netflix, do it. You, you will enjoy it, okay? They are meeting their hero. They have waited in line to meet their hero and be able to speak to their hero. And none of them are in the moment. All of them are experiencing this through their phones, through this technology. There's this disconnect. And even if there's this disconnect in terms of technology, because we aren't those that engage, we, we are more detached and observing, there's the sense of like, well, you know, we don't believe in kings anymore. That's the foundation of our nation. You know, we don't have kings. That's the whole point of this. Well, C.S. Lewis says this, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. We are hardwired 
to crown things. That is part of our nature. We were designed to worship. We were designed to crown things. We may not welcome a king, but we will welcome something like this. Over a million people at a Super Bowl concert. I mean, not concert, parade. Kind of similar. Uh, I know Jason will hate this because this is the New England Patriots parade. Um, one of six, you know, just saying. Um, but... Uh, but what we do is we think, oh, we're beyond this. We think, no, we're not going to give our allegiance to that. But there are things that we crown, whether they are athletes, whether they are film stars, whether they are business people, because we are hardwired to crown things. We want to celebrate. We want to feel the strong connection to, especially with sport. It amazes me. When your team loses, what do we say? They lost. When your team wins, what do you say? We won, you know. You don't participate in the loss, you participate in the victory. And there's a sense in which during this time, we want to feel the strong connection of hope. We want to feel the strong connection of, of victory. And, and this month and this time, and particularly this week, we are looking at what it means to welcome and celebrate our king. And we're welcoming and celebrating the unexpected expected king. And so we see the first thing about this king is that he is a winsome king. Now, Jesus is not trying to slip in to Jerusalem. He's not like some of these uh, celebrities that put on these disguises so that they're not recognized. But really, they really want to be recognized, right? Now, who walks around with a baseball cap and, um, you know, sunglasses and, and crouched over? These are these celebrities that are... are kind of saying that they don't want to be recognized, but they really want to be recognized. Jesus is not trying to slip into Jerusalem. He has changed the nature of what it means to be king. This is not a false or fake humility. As we said, he's fulfilling a prophecy, and he's fulfilling many prophecies. Born in Bethlehem, born in a major, now he's fulfilling another prophecy from the prophet that says, Say to the daughter of Zion, which is Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He is entirely consistent. His behavior is entirely consistent. He's lived his entire life as a humble king. He came in a manger. He lived um, a nomadic, blue-collar life. He now rides in on a donkey what we know to be crucified on a cross, to be laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. Much has been preached about the very obvious opposing picture of what the Caesars and the military champions would look like when they entered a city with um, a whole lot of pomp and ceremony with, on a big war horse, but this is subversive. There's a difference between something being subversive and weak, and this is definitely subversive. And we look at this winsome king, and we see that Jesus is winsome, but he has a very strong sense of self. He knows exactly who he is. Because later on, when the Pharisees say to him, in Luke's account of this, some of the Pharisees in the crowd say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell them to stop saying what they're saying. Jesus answers, he says, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. In his winsomeness, Jesus has a strong sense of self, and he calls us to be the same. He calls us to be humble, because humility is not opposed to security, it is opposed to arrogance. 
And Jesus is very secure in who he is. And he calls us to be the same. This is our winsome king. Next thing we see is the weeping king. In Luke's account, as he draws near on the cult, we are told that when he, drawn, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He weeps over a city that is spiritually blind, that doesn't recognize the real reason why he's there. And the challenge is our expectations can blind us with regards to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Our experience can blind us with regards to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. There's a sense in which people don't really understand what is happening here. And they're thinking, great, freedom has come to us like Exodus for the Israelites, but that is not the entire story. He's weeping over a blind people. I think he's also weeping because of the strong human element here. We know that Jesus experienced emotions just like us. I want you to picture this. Jesus is, is riding in on this donkey, on this colt, and there are people that are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, welcoming the Son of David. Now, Jesus knows that same crowd is going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him days later. He's the only one who knows that he's going to be betrayed. He's the only one who knows that he's going to be brutalized and tortured. He's the only one that knows he's going to die that death on the cross. He's experiencing this moment, and people don't really understand why he's there, and people don't really understand what he is going through, and he's weeping as he enters this place, this time of humiliation, of torture, and death, with the same crowd saying, Hosanna, a week from now, shouting the name of Barabbas instead of his name. The interesting thing is that the blind men could see who, who Jesus was. That's why we read that in, in verse 31. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Their expectation was that they would be able to see Jesus. Their expectation was that Jesus would free them. Their expectation was that Jesus would have mercy on them. Lord, have mercy on us. In fact, that cry of the blind men has changed the way in which the church prays. Because we pray today, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the promised one of Israel. But Nick, the crowd was also shouting. The crowd was also involved and engaged. Yeah, but what were they shouting? In verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that were following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, at first glance, it looks very similar. Uh, the cry of the blind men looks very similar to the cry of the crowd. But when we look at it a little closer, we'll see a massive difference. The blind men were crying out for what? They were crying out for mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Show us your mercy. Now, Hosanna is an interesting word. Hosanna means save now. It's a cry for freedom. It's lost a little bit of its meaning because now we're just connected to praise. But it's, it's, a, it's an appeal. It's a petition. It's an oppressed people's cry. Hosanna, free us. We want to be free. 
As many of you know, I, I grew up in South Africa, and there was something very, very similar that people would cry out. They would, they would hold their fist up, and they would say, Amandla! And the rest of the people would shout out, Awetu! Power to the people. This is a very similar cry. This is a cry for freedom. This is a cry for release. This is a passionate petition to be freed from the oppression of Rome. This is not a cry for mercy. This is slightly different. This is the same cry the Israelites would have cried out when they were in captivity in Egypt. God, we want to be free of the captivity of the Egyptians. And God comes through the Exodus and frees them, but they don't realize that God is freeing them from the captivity of their own souls. And as Jesus enters our life, we're crying out, Hosanna, God, free me from this. We're crying out, Hosanna, God, a plea. I, I, I want the injustice to be dealt with. And we should be crying out what the blind men were crying out, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Because I know that I've, I'm experiencing a lot of darkness, and I have experienced a lot of darkness, and I want to be free from that. But I also know that there's a darkness inside me, and only you can free me from that. I also know that you are the only one that can open my eyes to see the true light and true life of who you are. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin and self and Satan. And sometimes when we look at the coming of the king, there's no internal audit. Our expectations have primed us for a specific purpose. And we're crying out for justice instead of mercy. And we're very aware of the injustices that we face, very aware of the injustices around us, and we're not aware of our need for mercy. In fact, we resist the thing that we really need. Michaela showed me this video of her son, Kingston. And uh, you can play the video. And in the video, he, he needs to go to bed. Um, he is dead tired. That is his need. And he has decided that he's not going to do that. And he tries to hold his head up by his hair with his hand. Because he believes that what is best for him is to stay awake. And yet what we know as parents is what he needs is to be put down. I mean... Put to sleep. The problem with our expectations and our experiences is that when the king comes into our lives, we tell the king what we need. When the king comes into our lives, he tells us what we need. The whipping king. We see him as a winsome king. We see him as the weeping king, and now we see the whipping king. He will shake your world. Verse 10, he entered Jerusalem, and the whole city was stirred up. That word is seismos. It's where, where we get the word seismic. It, it means shaken, quaked. The whole city is stirred up. Who is this? That is the main question that people ask when it comes to the nature and person of Jesus. Who is this? A prophet, a teacher, some magician that can perform these tricks? Who is this? This is the Son of David. This is the Son of God. This is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. When, when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus says to Peter, Who do men say that I am? He says, You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You are Peter, and on this rock, both Peter and the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Verse 12, Jesus enters the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And in Matthew it says, pray for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, some of you were here when we were talking about Galatians, and we were talking about the outer courts. And we were talking about there were certain places where Gentiles were allowed, and those were the outer courts. And what had happened is that, um, is that the Jewish people had moved into the outer courts, and they were doing something which was pretty necessary. You're like, why are we talking about pigeons here? Like in the whole thing, why does Scripture mention pigeons? Because pigeons were necessary as um, an act of sacrifice. You could buy a pigeon to be able to sacrifice it. And what Jesus did is he cleared the outer court, which was the Gentile court of the temples. And he's saying, uh, this is meant to be a house of prayer. There was a sense in which Gentiles could come in and experience something of what it meant to be connected with Yahweh, but not be able to experience the fullness of it. Now, I want you to see this in these moments as Jesus comes in and he clears the outer court and he says, I want everyone to be able to experience this. And then a couple of days later, what happens? The curtain in the Holy of Holies is ripped from top to bottom. Not, not necessarily to allow people into the Holy of Holies, but that Jesus comes bursting out of the Holy of Holies for everyone to experience. The temple imagery now shifts into the fact that you had to be in a specific place in a specific time to experience Jesus. Now, because of his death and resurrection, you no longer have to do that. And this is a foretaste of what Jesus is doing. He is clearing the decks. He's humble, but he's also a king. Humility is not the opposite of strength. He shakes our false faith in morality and culture in religion and autonomy. And, and what he does is he helps us understand exactly who he is. So he cleanses the temple. Then he curses the fig tree. Then he challenges and offends the Pharisees. And he tells them this countercultural narrative that those that think they are part of the kingdom of God are maybe not part of the kingdom of God. He talks about a narrow gate. He talks about sheep and goats. He talks about the reality that if you put your confidence in anything other than Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death, you are not as secure as you think you are. Have you guys heard that statement, I don't think God would? I don't think God would do this. I don't think God would do that. Do you know what the solution for that is? To read the Bible. Because whenever you think, I don't think God would do that, then you read this humble king who comes with power and with authority and who shakes like an earthquake. The whole city is shaken, walks in and says, this is not what God had in mind. Now, the city would literally be shaken twice more. There would be an earthquake when Jesus died on the cross, and there would be another earthquake when Jesus was resurrected. Three earthquakes. As he enters, not a literal earthquake, the city is shaken. The writer uses the same word. Now, something is about to happen. The unexpected, expected king has come. At his death, the earth literally quakes, and at his, at his resurrection, the earth quakes again. We are so privileged that we live 
in what's called the dispensation of grace, because we are now the temple of God. I think the challenge is when Jesus comes into our temple, and he says, have you made space for outsiders to be in your courts? Is there enough room for Gentiles? Is there enough room for outsiders, for seekers, to kind of come into the outer courts and see what it's like to visit? Kind of think of it as the porch of your life. And as I was reading through this, I was thinking, wow, I wonder what it would take for me to actually clear my outer courts. So that people that don't know, or people that think they know, or people that have very different ideas to me about who Jesus is can actually comfortably come into the court and can see for themselves what it would look like to be part of this people of faith. We are the temple of God. And I believe God is wanting to cleanse those areas where we've squeezed others out into the margins because we're so focused on our own religious activity, not recognizing that we are part of those that should be calling others in to the temple courts of God. Jesus is our king, and he's our example. I guess the question is, can we be as winsome and as humble as Jesus was, while at the same time functioning in the living reality that we are sons and daughters of the living God? That should give us deep, deep security. We've been going through this now for two and a half months in Galatians. The seat of our identity is nothing that we have done. The seat of our identity is all about what Jesus Christ has done and completed. Are we able to be humble while actually recognizing the fact that we have a privileged position as sons and daughters of the living God? Maybe I've confused the idea of bravado with a sense of strength. Maybe I'm like brave and posturing, but, but it's actually not the kind of strength that Jesus showed in there. Or maybe I've confused inaction or not wanting to ruffle anybody's feathers with a sense of humility. And we see Jesus doing both. We see Jesus coming in humbly on the donkey, on the colt, when the Pharisees challenge him, he says, no, I'm not going to tell them to keep quiet, because if they kept quiet the rocks would cry out. Maybe we need to be those who, who learn what it's like to weep over our city, to pray, even this week as we've been fasting. So many people not aware of the time of their visitation. So many people um, completely unaware, never mind the time, never mind what, what is happening, but completely unaware of what it means to see this humble king come in, what it represents for their lives, that we're able to weep and pray and say, God, will you use me to be able to help people see what this time, what this season means? Are we able to be those that stand up confidently, just like Jesus did when he walked into the temple? And when injustices are preventing other people from tasting of the grace that we have tasted of, being able to say, no, clear my life, God. I want you to clear all the clutter that is there so that I can invite those that don't think they can be in this, in, in this outer court and I can invite them to see. Maybe they'll be able to see. Son of God, have mercy on me. Band, you can come up. Who is this? This is our unexpected king. 
Who is our unexpected king? Well, we know who he was. We also, those that have placed our faith in Jesus, will know this about our unexpected, expected king. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he strikes the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. Who is this? This is our unexpected, expected King. Yes, Jesus was the King that was born in a manger. Jesus was the King that carried the burden of our sin. Jesus was the King that brought us life from death. Jesus was the King that came to serve rather than be served. He was the King that conquered Satan's sin and death. He was the king that for us, that have accepted his sacrifice, ended the war in our souls. He was the king that made us his beloved children. He is also the king that will return on a war horse. We sang this morning, the lion and the lamb. When John saw Jesus, he said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When John sees Jesus again through the, through the prophecy of revelation, this is what he sees. He sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is this king? He is a king that has come to right every wrong and to undo every sad thing. He is a king that will wipe away every one of our tears. He is a king that will welcome us home. He is our unexpected, expected king. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. God, I pray that as we just turn our attention to you through song, as we turn our attention to you through communion, it would just be a fresh reminder of the fact that we need your mercy more than we need anything else. Jesus, we cry out for your mercy. I pray that by your Spirit you would help us to be those that are humble and strong those that are humble and have a deep sense of self because our self is rooted in who you have made us to be. I want to pray that we'd be those that weep over our city, over people that do not recognize the day of your visitation and that you would give us the strength and wisdom to be able to clear the outer courts of our heart, to be able to invite others just a little bit closer into you, our magnificent King. Jesus, you're our King. You're coming back to claim us. We long for you. We, uh, we come each week. I love the opportunity to uh, 
to do communion together. Um, it literally represents the body and blood of Christ. and um, He's present with us. He's present with us. This is kind of the main thing, actually, <laughs> in many ways. Right? We love the, the, the worship, the, the, the teaching, but Jesus is present with us. And, and, and literally, like if Jesus was here, I heard a preacher talk about it. Jesus was literally walking in this room like we would all clamor to him. <laughs> we hold in our hands, I mean, it's a symbol, but there is a reality to the fact that Jesus Christ is with us, this king. And we have an opportunity this morning, as Nick preached about, to join kind of the blind beggars. I'm just going to read that, that, that portion of scripture again. There were two blind men sitting by the road or by the roadside, and we heard that Jesus was passing by. They shouted, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The, ground, the, the crowd sternly ordered them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Jesus stood still and called them, saying, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. This is an opportunity, church, to exchange the things that we carry in with us for the grace of, of God, for the touch of God. And maybe you're somebody here this morning that, as Nick was preaching, you recognize that there's things in the court of your life that need to get pushed out. Maybe even the Holy Spirit highlighted some specific things. I want to encourage you. There's people to my left and to your right that are available to pray. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to, to get prayer for that. We all face that at different times. But if God's highlighted that, that's a grace to you. He wants to help you with, he wants to help you with that. For the rest of us, there's this sense of we want to see. And, and, and by the way, maybe you're someone here that doesn't know who this Jesus is. Just like in the passage when Nick preached, like there's this stirring going on. It's like, who is this? If there's anyone in here that is this thinking like, who is this? I just don't know this Jesus. We would love to talk to you about it. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to, to enter into that conversation with you. It's a safe place to do that. There's, it's not a sales pitch. He doesn't need a sale. He doesn't need salespeople. He's awesome. Like, we'd love to talk to you if that's you. Receive prayer for the things that you need to receive prayer for. And for all of us, Jesus, we come to this. We hold this bread. And we ask, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. We take this in remembrance of you. Lord Jesus, we take the cup and we ask that you would open our eyes that we may see you this day throughout this week, God. Even as we enter into this fast, help us to see. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. The band is going to continue to play. We're going to officially draw to a close. Um, there's people to my left, to your right. I want to encourage you to receive prayer. If there's something that was stirring about this morning, something specific about something moving out of the court of your heart, if you don't know who Jesus is, we'd love to talk to you.
Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.